Hey everybody, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander and I'm the host of this podcast. And today I'm going to talk to you about reimagining Homer's Odyssey as a spiritual path to liberation. And so Homer's Odyssey is the, the particular myth that I'm going to work with in this episode. And as always, and something I'm going to actually really try to get better at is putting all of the sources in the show notes of the episode. So all the ways to connect with me and then also anything that I mention in the show, I will put in the sources of the podcast show notes so that you can you know, interact with it if you're looking for further engagement. And I will say that I'm going to use in this paper also, I'm overlaying two things. So I'm overlaying the narrative structure of Homer's Odyssey, and I'm also looking at a, uh, a lecture given by Buddhist practitioner and psychotherapist Polly Young Eisendroth on what she calls the spiritual adventure of being human. And so I will link up the a podcast in which that lecture is actually aired if you want to listen to that too. It's really fascinating because it came out in 2001, right, I think right after September 11th. And there are some themes in that that have really become really prominent over the last couple of decades. And so, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, all of that will be linked up in the show notes of this episode. So before we get going to, I should probably say a few things about myth and maybe about truth and actually I guess about Homer too. So let's start with Homer. I'm sure you've heard of the the Odyssey and the Iliad and maybe even the Homeric hymns. You might have even had to read one of them in school growing up. And if you're anything like me, you probably use spark notes to get through it. But as I read this story as an adult, I felt it really moving moving something in me. And I one time heard a classicist say, you know, somebody that studies the classics in a podcast, they were asked like, hey, why should somebody read the classics? You know, why read the Odyssey? Why read the great spiritual texts? Why read Plato? Why read Moby Dick? You know, why read these kind of these great classics of literature? And he said something along the lines of, because reading the classics perfects the soul. And there's something really interesting about that that I sat with. And when you're reading anything at all, really, you know, you can read it. And the way that most people read something is that we identify with different characters within the text and and we read it that way. But you can also read the text and notice you, right? So you're rather than look only at the story, also try to build some awareness around what's happening in you while you're reading it. Because that's what's going to tell you what you really need to know. You know, you'll see, you'll read certain things and you'll feel confronted or you'll feel angry or you'll feel sad or you'll feel fulfilled. And, And if you have the curiosity to ask why that is, you know, it could lead you to deeper self understanding. And I've said it on here before, but like you can read every book in the world, you know, read every personal development book you want. But if you don't know the one who's reading, well, kind of useless. And so one of the ways to build self-awareness and to and to yeah, just go deeper in your own sort of self-understanding and self-insight is by reading especially these these great works of literature, but also noticing what is happening with you. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Do you have the courage to disagree with something that you read in a great work? And if you do, would you say it differently? Would you say it better? And then you look back at how they said it. And then you go back to, well, what would I say? Something I, I talked to uh, Danielle and I's book club about is like, you know, there's a lot of ways to read these myths and to engage with this kind of work. And all of them lead you to deeper self-understanding. 
And so when I was reading the Odyssey, that's what I did. And I noticed these feelings. I noticed fulfillment and I noticed anger and I noticed sadness and all these different things. And so it, it led me to want to work with the text a little bit deeper, which is why I decided to write this paper and focus on this intersection of spirituality and psychology and how we engage with the divine as a sort of finite individual. And this is what has led me into myth, right? This is why I, I find myth to be so fulfilling and so rewarding because James Hollis one time says, you know, he's a Jungian uh, analyst, I believe. But one of the things that he said is that myth is psychology and ancient language. And that's something that's always stood out to me. It's like, if you want to understand the way that humans are, you read myth and you tell stories. And that is actually brings us into probably the first thing we should say about Homer, the author, is that we don't really know if there was a Homer. You know, if we, if we don't know if that was one poet or was it perhaps a collection of poets that were focused around an oral tradition. And the reason we don't know that is because when you go back in time, and this is true for just about every culture, definitely true in like the Abrahamic religions and definitely true in the, in the Hindu world, once you get back about 2,000, you know, 2,500, 2,700 years ago, you, you run out of history. And, and at that point, you're just looking at oral traditions. And when you ask, like, why did these oral traditions, why do we tell these stories? Why was Homer's Odyssey something that was retold over and over by different bards and then eventually committed to writing? And I think one of the answers is in what John Verveke, the cognitive psychologist, calls a psychotechnology. You know, a psychotechnology is, are the things that we develop that allow us to engage with the world in new you could say in new and expansive ways and bigger ways and deeper ways, right? Like the creation of language in the first place. Like if you're illiterate, well, I should say this, if you're illiterate, if you cannot read, if you cannot write, your problem solving capacity goes way down, gets way smaller. There's way less that you're capable of doing. And so what we do as humans is we've developed these psychotechnologies and often in like utilitarian reasons, right? So that we can survive, so that we can make life easier. And so one of the reasons we tell stories is because stories have, well, what we would today call a moral, like there's a morality to a story. But what I think uh, one way you could understand it is that there's a logic to the story. And the logic increases based on your consciousness. What I mean by that is Dr. David Hawkins talks about this idea in the book Power Verse Force. He talks about this idea that we live in a holographic universe. And what he means by that is that the way that the place that you're standing from is influencing what it is that you're seeing. Now, we all intuitively, I think, know that this is true, right? We know that you have a point of view, and if you move to a different point, your view changes. But that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is, no, the level of consciousness at which you you are, right? That the level of awareness that you have, the level of understanding that you have is going to affect what you see, right? Some people look at something and they see a problem, an obstacle, for example, in their path, and some people see it as an opportunity, right? And so the way that you're looking at something is affecting what it is that you're seeing. And I would say that like in religions, people have understood this forever, right? Like, I, I mean, I understood this at a pretty at a pretty deep level when I was young, even though I couldn't articulate it quite so well, 
you read a Bible verse at 17, you know, some kind of scripture, and then you read it again at 24, and then you read it again at 30, it's likely that you're going to discover new and deeper meanings because you're changing, right? And any great work of literature, especially like the, any kind of like scriptural tradition, there's so much depth there that there are lifetimes. There's an infinite, you could say, literally infinite level of depth at which you could understand it. And I talk on here sometimes about contemplative practice and how I commit to a contemplative path. And one of the reasons is because what it does is that it tries to, what contemplation does is it injects space, you know? And so if you have, and you can contemplate a single word, right? Like let's take omnipresence, right? Now what that means is it's like a, it's a word that we use to describe God that says that God is everywhere. But if you sit with that and you really start to reflect on what that means, you start to reflect on the fact that, well, if that were true, that means that the leaf that turns over in the wind doesn't do that without God knowing about it and being part of it. Right? And so it starts to open up a new and deeper understanding of what it is that we're talking about. And if you sit with that, you might say, well, what does that mean for the breeze that I feel on my face right now? Like if, if God's everywhere, and that's something we say, is it is God here? Is God imminent? Is God internal? Like, where is this? What, what does this mean? And, you know, the more you allow your curiosity to travel and traverse around this concept, the deeper the concept becomes, the layers of meaning become apparent to you. And this is the same thing you're doing when you read one of these great texts and you're paying attention to you. You get curious about what's happening for you, and that's what opens up deeper insight and self-awareness and in even deeper layers of truth, you could say. Now, I think right here would be a good time to talk about truth and about different ways that we can maybe understand truth. And also, why is it that humans tell stories that have an underlying logic with a truth in them that we can then engage with and hopefully integrate into our lives? We think of today as truth, and this is this is something that, as far as I can understand, has come because of the post-Enlightenment period, right? So we were all born into a certain culture. We were all born into stories, and those stories have values, right? Like people before us have decided what is valuable, what is worth pursuing. And every culture, you can, you can almost understand different periods of history by what it was that they value. You know, you can look at the Renaissance and the decadence and you can, you can see how they valued this idea of pleasure and how they tried to reconcile pleasure and virtue. And you can look at the Enlightenment and you can see how they really, they really valued rationalism. And that's the world and the story that we were born into because modernity and and post-modernity are both post-enlightenment. And so now we have this idea that in order for something to be true, it has to fit into our rationalism, as if all that life is, is rational. And so now, if it's truth, it's a fact. It's something we can point to. It's something static. And now history gets read through this lens, too. And so in order for us to consider it history, it has to be a fact that we can point to and we can say, yes, this is this happened. And the interesting thing about history is that if 10 people were present for something and they all were to retell it, they would, they would see something different about it because this is, as Hawkins says, a holographic universe. And this is why eyewitness testimonies um, can be such garbage. You know, there's some really good studies actually showing how, 
how terrible eyewitness testimonies can be because we just we don't understand the world like we think that we understand it, like it presents to us because we're seeing through filters of perception and values and morality and conditioning and all these other things. So let's talk about, though, what it means that truth is now a static thing. Well, first of all, it means that if truth is a fact, then we reject everything that's not that, right? So now, if it doesn't fit into our rational logic, then we reject it. And you can see that this has this has really influenced the way that we understand our own mythos, our own mythologies, because now those become logic, they become formulas. And if you have any experience with like Western Christianity, for example, you can tell that really what's being worshipped is a formula, right? It's like if you say the certain, the right things that point to a certain fact in history, then that's how liberation happens. That's how you get saved, to use the language. But truth is something that you remember. It's something that you that you step into in its fullness. And so the, the great spiritual traditions, the mythos, what they were trying to do is liberate you from the finite self, the finite understanding of what's true so that you can step into a wider and more encompassing truth. And the reason that I think that this new kind of definition of what's true really does us a disservice is because it, it says all other interpretations they're not true. Like you can only read it in one way. It only means one thing. And it's like, well, if you just grow, if you just grow your consciousness and engage with it again, you know, that's not true. You know, there's deeper meanings here and there's more depth. And so it means all kinds of things. And if you can recognize that, you start to step into awe and you start to step into mystery and you realize the, the, true, the true depth of the mystery that is all around you at all times. And that awe puts you in right relationship with the cosmos itself. It puts you in right relationship with truth because there's something humbling about the finite creature stepping up to the awe of the infinite. But as soon as you, as soon as you staple it down and you say, well, it only means this, you forego the mystery and the depth of truth that's available. So Homer's Odyssey tells the story of the Greek hero Odysseus and his return voyage to Ithaca after the Trojan War. So the Iliad is about the Trojan War. And so what happens is after the Iliad, the Odyssey, then that's when the Odyssey takes place. But Odysseus, the, the hero, actually gets like kind of blown off course and ends up on this great adventure. And I'll talk about that adventure as we're going through it, but just a little bit of context of what's happening here. His fantastic adventures highlight the polarities of human experience as he both suffers and prospers. He lives as a beggar and as a god. He knows the satisfaction of gain and the solemn anguish of loss. And he both fights and loves to the point of despair. Such mythical exploits demand interpretation as scholars for millennia have sought to comment on and explore the myth's meaning and emergent underlying logic. In 2001, Jungian analyst and Buddhist practitioner Paul Young Eisendroth gave a lecture at the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago in which he imagines an approach to human life that regards life itself as a spiritual path to liberation. Um, as I said, I will link that up in the show notes of this episode if you want to listen to it. Uh, it's a concept that she affectionately calls the spiritual adventure of being human. Now, the tenets of this path are informed by a mixture of insights gained through the practice of Buddhism, as well as her work as a psychotherapist. The assertion of this paper is that if one amplifies the symbolism and examines the narrative closely of the Odyssey, 
the Nostos of Odysseus, can be understood as a portrayal of young Eisendroth's approach to liberation. Now, for the purposes of expanding the illustration of the Odyssey as spiritual allegory, I've also outlined additional correlations between the text and other facets of the perennial philosophy. So a couple of footnotes I think probably worth mentioning here is that young Eisendroth, didn't, she didn't formulate her lecture into tenets. I did that just to make it easier to work with. Um, but I did talk to her about it and, and make sure that like she agreed with the tenets that I put forth. So I was representing her work accurately, you could say. And then if you've never heard of the perennial philosophy, I'll put it in the sources as well. It's a book written by Aldous Huxley, and it attempts to show the coherence between all great spiritual paths aimed at the liberation of the individual ego. And so he takes contemplative Christianity and Hindu and Buddhism, and he overlays them on top of each other. Oh, and then the word nostos, too. That means like return home. It's a Greek word for a return home. Actually, I'm part of a nonprofit organization called Nostos that works with veterans and helps them on that journey back to sort of civilian life. So interesting kind of parallel with that word. Now, that Homer portrays Odysseus's journey home as one of the spiritual variety needs little explanation as the entirety of the epic is conceived of as taking place within the realm of the gods, right? So in the Odyssey, if you've ever read it, the gods are prolific. They're everywhere. You know, he's he's constantly accompanied by Athena, Athena which I'll talk about what that means, you know, the goddess of war and wisdom, um, one of the virgin daughters of Zeus. And it's as if the author's goal was to show that as young Eisendroth points out in her lecture, all moments are spiritual, not just the ones that we deem as such. And so if the constant presence of the archetypal realm is not convincing enough, further evidence of Odysseus being on a spiritual path can be seen when in book 10 he recounts the unfortunate beginning of his perilous journey. And so this is where I'm really starting to get into my interpretation of the Odyssey but we can understand from a psychological perspective, you know, you can understand your spirituality or connection to spirit as a sort of sensitivity to the realm of the archetypes, to the realm of the gods, you know, to the realm of what Plato would call the forms. These are the inherent energies that are manifest and give structure and rise to our reality. I think I said this on the very first episode, but one of the things that Jung said is like, if you were to reduce the world down to two people again, or whatever, four people, eight people, some low number, hopefully that helps you avoid incest for a while, and you were to rebuild everything. Now, you might not have everything exactly the same. You know, you might not have the NFL or the NBA or, you know, whatever real housewives of whatever um, city, but for the most part, the world is actually going to unfold in almost the exact same way because there is something that is influencing the way in which we act, the behaviors we exhibit, the patterns that we live out, and those patterns Jung understood as what he called archetypes, the, the sort of patterns of reality. And I think really that's a, that's a play off the idea that Plato put forth, which was his forms. You know, in Plato's theology, he has almost the exact same idea. Now, you might understand your own spirituality as a sensitivity to the realm of the gods, a sensitivity to the realm of the archetypes. And it might be that if you go to try to fulfill that and you go to a religion, that it, you might find that it doesn't quite satisfy what it is that you're looking for. 
And there's a lot of reasons for this. And there's a huge difference between spirituality and religion. And maybe at some point I'll talk about those things. But Jung actually made the point that actually the goal of religion is to help, is to make people less spiritual over time because spirituality is dangerous, right? Because spirituality, and I mean dangerous if, for example, you're hoping to build a culture or to keep order because there's no borders to spirituality. There's no limit. It's where the two become one. You know, it's where dualism is dissolved. And in that space, there are no borders in which you could define spirit or say, this is where spirit ends. You might infer the same energy and call it a different name. And if I'm in a religion, I have to defend the name of the energy, you see. And so you might find that some of the rules and some of the regulations around religion aren't they're not fulfilling enough for you in a spiritual sense because you have this sort of sensitivity, this feeling. You're more in touch with the realm of the archetypes or the realm of the gods, and you're looking for a place to fulfill that. And it might be that you find that at a place like a concert, you know? I was at a concert, a uh, Dermot Kennedy concert this summer at Red Rocks, and I was just thinking, I was like, oh, this is church, right? This is a whole bunch of people. And if you think about what, what's worship, it's attention, we give attention to. So a whole bunch of people, and they're facing a person. And what is singing? Well, singing is soul calling to spirit, right? That's what singing is. It's soul calling out to spirit. It's, it's connecting with spirit. And so all of these people are worshiping, giving their attention to this soul that's calling out to spirit. Now, so it has this kind of church feel. It's what maybe church could be if it didn't have all of the regulations and the rules because art is something like religion plus chaos. And what I mean by that is, in religion, there are all these orders, you know, there's doctrines, there's, there's reason, there's, and there's reasons for these, okay, I don't want to come off as I'm saying that there isn't. But the point that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to get across here, and, and I realize now I have gone so far from this paper, but this is something that I, I am fascinated by, is this idea that sometimes you can, you can ha feel the fulfillment of your spiritual desires through something like art, through something like a concert, because it might just be the way that your soul connects to spirit. And so if you have religion, there's rules, right? There's rules about what we talk about. There's rules about what we say. So if you want to understand art, you can understand it as religion plus chaos. It's the same interaction though, right? It's the same soul-spirit interaction. And so you feel the same things when everybody sings the same song and holds a lighter up. You feel the spirit that kind of swells into the arena, right? It's the same, the same sort of human proclivity to the realm of the archetypes that's taking place. So I digress. I'm not going to go any further, but maybe someday I'll talk about um, some more of those differences. And I also say that just because I think sometimes we, if we grew up with um, a really strict God image, then we have a hard time allowing ourselves going to concerts to be our spiritual practice. And part of that is because we've, we haven't really understood that a true spiritual practice should liberate, it should set us free. And so if your spiritual practice doesn't allow you to feel free, then um, it, it, if, as John says, St. John, it doesn't lead to life abundant. Well, it just might not be the one for you. So now back to why I think that this is considered to be a, a spiritual path, this story, the logic of this story and the odyssey.
The god Aeolus had given Odysseus a bag containing all of the winds and had then stirred up a westerly wind to guide Odysseus and his men back home. Okay, so this god Aeolus gives Odysseus as a boon a, a bag with all of the winds and sends him home. And just as they approach Ithaca, Odysseus is asleep in the ship, and his men, jealous that Odysseus may have been given more boon than the others, they open the bag to look inside, and when they do, they accidentally unleash the wind, and that blows them all like far off course, so kind of scatters them to the end of the world, because he just opens up all the wind of the world, just come out of this bag, blow them way off course, and they get lost. And that's why... Odysseus goes on the Odyssey, right? Because he was blown way off course. Now, in his lectures on the psychology of Kundalini Yoga, Jung notes that the connection between wind and spirit is due to the fact that the spirit was thought originally to be the breath, the air one breathes out or expires. The Greek word uh, anumos means wind or pneuma means spirit. So they're the same word in ancient cultures. And these kind of examples are all throughout the ancient world. And they, they suggest a correlation that was well understood by the ancient mind. You know, the Hebrew word ruach, it is both wind and spirit. And so like if you read Genesis, right, it's the way that humanity is animated by the divine is that God breathes into us, right? And so what I'm suggesting is that the correlation of, of the presence of this wind in conjunction with the ancient mind, should tell us that, that it is a spiritual journey. And further, it is the spirit that carries one off the course desired and intended by the finite self that brings them up the chakra system and into greater consciousness. Well, if not for a bit of suffering along the way. His men, the men in this case, symbolize the part of oneself that's not content with their lot in life and through jealousy or covetous or some other lower aspect of the finite self, we all have them, right? They properly make a mess of one's life. Now, once you already ascend the chakra system, right? So once your consciousness is increased, once you, once you get closer to liberation, you could say, when you view this journey that you're on in your life from the higher chakras, all of that misadventure, it turns out to be part of the divine unfolding as the benevolence baked into existence allows the person to feebly and blindly stumble toward the light while they're caught in their own lower nature. But the liberated person is apt to look back on their chance encounters and unintentional suffering and see it all as a grace made possible by the spirit. Right? And so that's exactly what happens because well, we'll talk about it, but when Odysseus actually does get home, he gets home with far more than what he had when he was about to when he was about to get there. And there's all kinds of symbolism in that too. But I think for us, the thing that's important to to work with and recognize is that, like, yeah, we make a mess of our lives. And we do it all the time. And that doesn't say anything about our worth or our value as a human being. But you know what's very interesting here is that Odysseus is asleep. And, you know, when we are living out of our lower nature, that's exactly right. The process of becoming liberated, in fact, is referred to as the process of waking up. And so where Odysseus is asleep and these lower aspects of his own nature are taking part in and, you know, creoping the bag that creates the problem that sends him on this journey, right? we can understand that as ourselves trying to make ourselves happy, you know, trying to satisfy our finite needs while we are, in fact, unconscious. It is the process of waking up that we are in 
embarked on in this life. So this approach to human life views the journey specifically as a wisdom path, which, according to Young Eisendroth, is characterized by being a transformative rather than educative path, right? Rather than educative, it's actually transformative. And while transformation could be understood in many ways throughout the poem, mythologist Joseph Campbell understands the journey of Odysseus as one of reconciliation with the feminine, understood in depth psychological terms as the integration of the anima. So this is this is the connection with one's own soul, right? And so because uh, Odysseus is masculine, if you're looking at it through a Jungian lens, then he has to, he's exiled from his own contrasexual energy, which is what keeps him away from his soul. And a lot of men in our world are that way. We have no connection to our own feminine, and as such, we're not connected to our own soul. So Dr. Lansing Smith comments on this in his essay, The Hero Journey in Literature. And what he says is that each encounter with the archetypal feminine in the poem reenacts the death and rebirth mysteries celebrated at Eleusis, leading toward the final integration of the anima into human life, symbolized by the reunion of Odysseus and Penelope. So what he's saying there is that throughout this story, Odysseus is in fact having to engage with different feminine characters. And he you can see the transformation of his character based on the way that he engages with the feminine in the story. Like when the story opens up, he's exiled on or he's actually held captive on the island of calypso and calypso is a nymph a goddess uh, of the ocean of the earth you know a nymph is kind of like a earthly goddess not a not a goddess of olympus right and that's the first feminine and he meets other characters along the way and the whole journey is about can he get home to his wife penelope can he and, and Penelope, in this case, is the symbol of his soul, right? She's the symbol of the, of the union of him with his own anima. Because if you're going to read a myth psychologically, what you want to understand is that you're not one of the characters, you're all of them. And it's all taking place within you, right? I think I've said this before, so I won't go deep into it. But that's how we're working with this here. So you can see through the evolution of the Odyssey is that Odysseus is having to interact with the feminine in different ways until he can finally be brought into union with it. And I don't think I have to say this, but like, you know, if you just think about the way that men viewed women in ancient times, it wasn't one of union, right? It was one of objectification and one of ownership. And so part of what I'm saying, the reason we tell these stories even is because we're trying to learn, we're trying to stumble toward the divine, we're trying to unfold the path and ask ourselves what it means to be here and to be human. And oftentimes these stories, they actually are right in front of us. They're telling us even if we're not getting it in real life. So it should also be noted here that in terms of the Hindu path to awakening, the union of man with his anima, that is to say when a person becomes conscious of his own soul, he also finds immortality. That is what is meant by the term self-realization. Thus Odysseus in this way attains the ultimate goal of all spiritual paths. The recognition of the self is further illustrated when Odysseus returns home with heaps of gold. So from the Phaeacians, he gets this boon that he ends up bringing home when he finally does return at the end of the journey. And if you want to understand the symbolism, like Joseph Campbell identifies gold, for example, as the eternal symbol of the self. And so you'll see like gold Buddhas, for example. It's like, what's going on with that? It's like, well, it is purity, right? And purity is self. Right, So when you think about self-realization from the Hindu perspective of trying to 
find the self, right? This is to look through the false self, and it is to find the unborn, the undying self, right? So that's the pure aspect of you. That's what's real about you. That's what's not going to die. And so if you can recognize that before you die, right, the logic goes that you don't die. It's like the sign before the Eleusinian mysteries. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die, you see? So if you can, if you can sacrifice the finite self in, in terms of trying to find the actual self, this is what I would contest Christ meant when he said those who would find their life must first lose it. And it's also why when we try to form or try to force mythos into logic and we end up we end up then worshiping a formula, that's educative, right? It's like well, you just have to know the right things. But again, I think mythos says no, you you have to become the right thing. You have to transform so that what you are is that eternal self so that what you know yourself as is what's real and something if you're if you're akin to noticing the difference between hindu and buddhism that i want to put forth here that i put in a footnote is that young eisendroth herself does not recognize the soul from a buddhist perspective right there is there is no self from the buddhist perspective but understands individuation and awakening as both essential goals of human life Thus, this point is merely to highlight other ways the path of Odysseus can be understood specifically as a path to liberation into greater consciousness. But according to Young Eisendroth, the two paths, individuation and liberation, each offer the aspirant something of value that the other does not, and thus the two can be approached simultaneously. Now, what's interesting about that is, the reason I put that is because I'm working with this Young Eisendroth lecture, and she comes from a Buddhist perspective, but you know what's interesting about that is even in the Hindu perspective, once you find the self, you get let in on the secret that the self, which is called Atman in Sanskrit, or Atma, is identical with Brahman, which is God most high. And so that's what it means when they say Tatvam Asi, thou art that, you see, because when you actually know what you really are, you and God cease to be other than each other. But there's, you know, a whole path to liberation that has to occur between now and then. And I just say that because I don't know if the two are, I don't know if they're saying something actually different in the final analysis, like once you really get down to reality. Now, viewing his return home as a wisdom path is also emphasized in the constant support of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. Not only is it Athena that lobbies for Odysseus's return home, but it's her spirit which animates Mentor and is only by her constant support and intervention that the journey is successful. Now, this is precisely the role of wisdom on the spiritual path. At yet another time, Athena, child of Zeus, devised a plan. She blocked the path of all the other winds. Another chief role of wisdom on the spiritual path is discernment between spirits. And so that's what I'm saying is happening in the text. Now, continuing the theme of wind as spirit, Athena repeatedly plays this role for Odysseus. Now, something I wanted to say about Paul Young Eisendroth's comment that when we engage in a wisdom tradition, right, a wisdom path, it's, it's transformative, not educative, meaning that we engage with it and we change from the inside out. It's not an intellectual path. It's not about accumulating knowledge, right? It's not educative. It's about becoming something different. It's about engaging with a reality in a way that allows you to transform from the inside out and become something else. 
tatvam asi, right? Thou art that. Now, in order to situate the epic in terms of approaching human life as a path to liberation, let us turn to the poem's setting. Now, according to Young Eisendroth, this approach to human life is only possible when consciousness evolves to the point of seeking a higher aim in life. She says, collectively, we are facing an enormous demand to change our habits. Making war and making babies have been embraced as the means of human survival for millennia, but now neither war nor ever-expanding population will serve us well. And what I suggest is that it's not accidental that the Odyssey takes place specifically after the exploits of the Trojan War, because this is to symbolize the evolution of, consci of consciousness, right? Consistent with the transformation of Odysseus, right? Remember, he's learning to relate to the feminine, relate to his own soul differently as he transforms on this wisdom path. So finding meaning in harmony rather than meaning in conflict, is the aim of all spiritual paths. But it's often the case that one must first suffer the perils of conflict before they are ready to seek higher meaning. So this is just something that like, I, I totally get. Probably everybody doesn't agree with. I was in the military. I totally get it. But I also think like we're at a point in our the consciousness of our species where Quite honestly, we're going to hit the delete button if we don't if we don't figure out how to get along. I mean, just to put it bluntly. And it's interesting because young Eisendroth makes this point in her lecture. You know, she says 99.9% of all species on Earth have gone extinct, and I don't regard humans as above the possibility of that. And I just think that's something we should sit with because I think we say on here, I said it a lot actually in the last podcast, so I'll, I'll stop on that. Um, but I do think that there's a sort of, there's a, there's a shift that has to happen. The higher meaning is the realization of love as one's motivation, aim, and final destination. Now, if you disagree with that, I would just say that you might be thinking of love as too small of a phenomena because I'm thinking of it as much, I'm thinking of it as the absolute, as the only thing that's real, as the sort of binding structure of reality. Yet it is often true that one must be broken open by life in order to fully see the value that being motivated by love has to offer. Until we've suffered enough, we're likely to remain deluded by Maya as we continue to act as if we are separate from the rest of the world. Maya is the Sanskrit term for illusion. In Hindu philosophy, it is responsible for the belief in the separate self. So it's transcending Maya, it's seeing through it that an aspirant, spiritual aspirant, begins to see the world as one. So there's this point in Book 8 where basically Odysseus ends up on this island of the Phaeacians, and they're, they're the ones who end up actually sending him home in the end. But what's really interesting is that it, when he gets there, that's how we really learn about what happened during the Odyssey, because he recounts his perils. And as he does, his own affect, right, his own emotional response to what he's been through starts to break him open. And he's melting into tears. You know, it says his cheeks were wet with weeping as a woman weeps, as she falls to wrap her arms around her husband, fallen fighting for his home and children. She is watching as he gasps and dies. And I think the reason the poet talks like this, you know, that he's, he's melting, that he's dying, the reason that's happening is because this is the moment in his journey where the ego is fully being cracked open, where it's fully being sacrificed. 
Richard Rohr, he's a Catholic priest, he suggests that there are two paths to transformation, great suffering and great love. Now, as I understand it, and as Odysseus finds out throughout his saga, the two are actually the same path. I can't say enough about that. It's only when one is broken open by suffering that they learn to love properly. The suffering tempers the soul as fire tempers a blade, refining it toward its ultimate aim. Polly Young Eisendroth echoes this sentiment when she speaks in her lecture of the fact that love always presents to us as a great ambivalence. To love in the world of samsara, which is to love in the world of impermanence, is to agree to break your own heart. What's more is that for all of the treasures Odysseus gained through conquest, he was unable to keep any of it. He basically has to lose everything through this journey. Here, though, the love of the Phaeacians, he gained treasure that would last. So basically, what I'm saying is once his ego is cracked open, once he fully is open to love as the, the final aim of reality and the path of transformation that it calls us and the suffering it calls us toward, he then ends up with a treasure that is far bigger than all that he lost. And that's part of what we have to understand when we're in the part of our life where we're losing everything, you know, where things are falling apart on us. When we find Odysseus in the Odyssey, his path begins as all spiritual paths begin, leaving the paradisal Eden. The text makes two things clear. First, that Odysseus is in paradise with Calypso, where he can stay eternally. And second, that Odysseus would rather suffer unknown perils and face his fate as a limited human being than stay there. His eyes were always tearful, I'm quoting now from the Odyssey. He wept sweet life away and longing to go back home since she no longer pleased him. What the text makes clear here is that, like, Calypso wants Odysseus to stay with her forever, and he can live as a god. He can live a mortal. And when, even more interesting, when it describes the island of Calypso, you know, it's a place of uh, pleasure. You know, there's fruit everywhere. It's, it's got everything you could need. He's with a goddess, and the text makes clear that she is more beautiful than any earthly woman. And so everything you think that matters is taken care of. But yet, he wept his sweet life away. He had longing to go back home. And so I pose the question, what is it that makes a man who has already suffered so much willingly choose to forego the safety of paradise to face an unknown end, to embrace the limits and finitude of human life? So you might have come up against this in your life. I think sometimes our neuroses and the things that really turn into compulsions, for example, for us, they are a desire to go backward, a desire to go back into the paradisal Eden, you know, because not only is this the story of the cosmos, right, and this is the story of the Bible, but it's also the story of the human, because when we're born, we're born into undifferentiated oneness. And then the ego forms, and as the ego forms, we, break, we feel an experience of breaking away from the mother, of breaking away from that undifferentiated oneness. And then we get caught in the middle, and though we come here to go forward, to incarnate and go toward liberation, our libido and life force sometimes gets caught wanting to go backward toward compulsion or addiction because that's where we perceive safety is. And the counterforce to that regression is the urge to overcome the need for safety. This is what Carl Jung in the psychology of Kundalini Yoga describes as the divine urge. This is what Kundalini is. It's Odysseus is responding to the awakening of Kundalini. Kundalini, in psychological terms, is that which makes you go on the greatest adventures. 
It is the impulse to individuate and to awaken, each important in their own way to the spiritual adventure of being human. Just as the Gnostics understood that Adam was never meant to stay in Eden, there is never any amount of safety or luxury, and for the text definitely makes both explicitly available, that could keep Odysseus from his path to greater consciousness. And this is what I this is what I think is is actually being said in the Bible too, is that one must go forth. One must brave the fallen world in search of the new Jerusalem. It's well known that in terms of awakening, one's life is perfectly designed for them to achieve the ultimate goal of their life. What young Eisendroth posits is that there is actually something to be gained, and this is important, from facing the ordeals of one's life in a manner that allows you to gain wisdom which, as we have said, is what leads one to greater consciousness and the realization of a higher ideal. The ordeals of one's life are brought about as one accepts and rightly contends with their own finitude. Now, what that means is that we accept. It means that even if what does happen is not what we wanted to happen, it still might be what we needed to happen, and we can gain wisdom if we can accept that. Another tenet in the spiritual adventure of being human is called the morphati the love of one's fate. Young Eisendroth points out that most people suffer because their ideal in life is a static state, which is almost never true to the human experience. So much of our anguish comes not from experiencing life's low points, but from an inability to accept them. We resist flowing with the ups and downs of reality. Young Eisendroth says, human life is an adventure in which our limitations constantly challenge us to clarify our reality as ceaseless change. Love in this sense can be understood as unconditionally accepting one's fate rather than needing to triumph over it. Approaching life as a wisdom path necessitates the belief that there is something to be gained for having gone through the various difficulties of one's life. We see this over and over as Odysseus laments his fate before going directly into it. So I want to say something about this quickly because it's a really important point, which is that, you know, the challenges, the, the fact that you want life to be different and that you cannot make it different, that you can't change reality, that's what it means to wrestle with one's finitude. And this is actually also what the Buddha meant by delusion, right? It's it is thinking that getting what you want is going to make you happy that is deluding you from accepting reality as it is. And if you could accept reality as it is, it's likely that you would see that it's exactly what you need, even if it's not what you want, even if it hurts. I talk about this in my Psychology of Transformation lecture series that I'm getting ready to drop in a couple of weeks because the first you know, mode of transformation, I'm sorry, the first stage of transformation is confusion. It's dissonance. And sometimes what I notice when people are going through confusion, and the reason it's confusion is because you don't know who you're becoming. You don't know what you're transforming into. And so one of the things I notice with clients is that when they start to go into a period of transformation and they start to become confused, they start to suffer. And they're not suffering because they're confused. They're suffering because they don't think that they should be. They think they should know what they want, but the truth is that's why you're transforming because you don't know what you want and you don't know where you're going and you haven't realized the self and you're not liberated. And so if you can relax into that confusion and accept it, you might find that it's not nearly as bad as actually constantly spending your time thinking it should be differently, that you should be able to get out of it. And so this idea of amorphity, the love of one's fate, it's, it's learning to embrace 
divine will, you could say. One can look specifically at Book 5, where Eno, the white goddess, shows up to give Odysseus her scarf, which gets him out of the turbulent waters and onto dry land. Now, basically what happens is Odysseus is, is floating. He's trying to reach dry land, and I'll talk about later, but Poseidon has a, has a beef with him, stirs the waters up. He's about to drown, and then Eno, the white goddess, shows up and gives him a scarf and says it will get him to land and that he just needs to put it back in the water when he gets there. Now, this experience opens up another parallel to the path of awakening because the color white is often associated with purity, which constitutes the beginning phases of most, most spiritual paths, particularly within Hindu and Buddhist philosophy. It is purity that enables a person to remain unattached from wrong identification while they venture into the turbulent waters of the unconscious, here symbolized by the ocean. So I'm going to say part of the reason for purity is, one, because you're trying to identify what's pure about you, right? There's another part of it, which is that you there's a lot of energy from the divine and that you have to be able to hold that kind of energy. But there's another concept too, which is that in the Hindu world, for example, part of what you're doing is that you purify and then you go into the unconscious. And then you purify and then you go into the unconscious. And if you don't purify, if you're still attached to things, then you'll attach to what you find in the unconscious and it will eviscerate you. And so you have to purify as you move into the realm of the archetypal or the spiritual realm. Or what happens is you, one, get eviscerated, or two, you just stop growing spiritually. Your consciousness stops evolving. And this sucks for people because, you know, I've noticed this myself. Like you get to a point where you have to accept that certain parts of your lifestyle might have to go away if you want to keep getting closer to God. A way I've heard it talked about in Western culture is that if you take one step toward God, he'll take a step backwards. And that's not because God doesn't want you, it's to draw you in. And that the process of purification is often that. Now, Young Eisendroth explains in her lecture that while most people stay stuck trying to solve problems in what they regard as their own mind, it's actually more conducive to awakening if one accepts their limitations, asks for help, and then remains open to see where the help might come from. Right? So if you have a problem and you're trying to solve it in your mind, rather than accepting reality and just opening, you might find that the answer is right in front of you, but you're not open enough to accept it. Repeatedly, Odysseus supplicates himself to the gods and asks for mercy. His ability to become what he must in order to survive i.e. the beggar he becomes when he comes home to slay the suitors, beginning in book 14. His ability to use what's available to him in his environment, he uses these rams to escape a cyclops at one point, and his quick wit, which saves him in many different situations, are all examples of how a person approaching life in this way must be willing and open. As a trait, we might understand it today as psychological flexibility. In practice, for Odysseus, it's about embracing human, human limitation as a means of remaining open to the coming divine assistance, right? So there's a, there's a faith here. There's like a faith in that, that what you need will show up. And if you don't have that faith, you'll never stop trying to manipulate reality enough to actually see it. The next tenet on the spiritual adventure of being human laid out by young Eisendroth is taken from the Buddhist doctrine of dependent origination. This doctrine recognizes the interconnectedness of life. It states that all things are conditioned. That is, all things are the result of something else. They rise together into being. 
This means that a person is always living with the karma that they've acquired, and it is this karma that presents a person with exactly what they need in order to attain liberation. Odysseus learns about the interconnectedness of all things in very difficult ways. A poignant example of this in the text is his encounter with the Cyclops. After narrowly escaping his cave, Odysseus calls back to him, Hey you, Cyclops, idiot, taunting him as he leaves. Caught in an emotional complex, Odysseus loses his ability to relate to life calmly, though his men see the situation clearly and ask him to stop taunting the Cyclops. So basically what happens is, through his wit, Odysseus tricks the Cyclops, who has him trapped in a cave and is going to eat him. And I won't explain the whole story because we're going long here, but basically he gets away, but when he gets away, he calls back to him and like tells him his name. In other words, his inability to remain in a place of equanimity of mind, defined as a generally friendly disposition toward the experiences one's life presents them with, means that his actions will incur karma. Now the Cyclops, who is the son of Poseidon, calls on his father to curse Odysseus, turning his journey across the sea into a living hell. Here Odysseus suffers immensely for his pride and arrogance, as all of his men are killed and almost every passage he has across the sea is full of suffering. Now his men must die on this path, as the lower aspects of one's own nature must be sacrificed in service to greater consciousness, which is made possible only by contending rightly with one's own past karma. While this happens throughout the saga, as it does for any aspirant, the bulk of his men are killed by Helios, the gentle sun god who brings light to the earth. The allegorical parallels are directly in front of us here as the parts of oneself that do not properly respect the light are consumed by it. This is more purification that must happen on the way to life's ultimate goal. One can deduce a principle from both this interaction as well as the one with Cyclops. When a person treats life as if he is separate from it and can do what he pleases to it without ramifications, his subsequent sojourns into the unconscious are going to be riddled with pain and suffering, here symbolized by Odysseus' journey across the ocean. According to dependent origination, and indeed the plot woven by Homer, it can be no other way because these things arise together. The only journey across the ocean he takes that is free from past karmic entanglements is the final journey home, in which case he's already successfully undergone enough purification to realize the destination. Now, what I just want to say about this real quick is like, you'll notice this. Like if you're in a place where you really think you're separate from everybody else and you can treat people however you want and it's not going to come back on you and you can treat people like they're assholes, whatever you want, you'll notice that your own subconscious is hell. And like I, I'm thinking back to myself in my 20s when I really thought that I was a separate being from everybody else and I could get away with doing what I want and that I was, you know, I, like, I would hold on to, to my self-righteous justifications. I, I deserve to be angry. I deserve to be these things. And if I found my moment and if I found myself in a moment with silence, it was hell. Like I couldn't even drive to work with the radio off. Because this is what happens. The unconscious is just, it. you're constantly being reminded that you're not, in fact, separate from life. And all of your karma is constantly reminding you that you have things to work through, things to make peace with, things to accept. Now, as one moves up the chakra system and into awakening, they move from anahata, the heart, and the last of the lower chakras identified with matter, and into vashuddha, the throat chakra, and beginning of the spiritual realm. 
According to Joseph Campbell in the mythic image, this region, we are told in a tantric text, is the gateway of great liberation. It is a place in mythology often associated with the crossing of a threshold and with the passing through the area of the siren's call. This passage presents with much difficulty and the ignorant will surely be pulled into the trap of the sirens. In book 12, Odysseus has his men all plug their ears with wax. So basically, he has to go through the area of the sirens. And so what he does is he has all of his men plug their ears with wax, and he has them tie him to the mast of the ship so that he can hear the siren call but cannot go to them. Now, this is crucial to our understanding of awakening because one cannot repress or ignore the urges and temptations that come with this passage to awakening, else they will come up later to pull the spiritual aspirant back down to the lower chakras. Rather, a person must feel the temptations viscerally, sacrificing his own desire and thus being purified through the passage. Note Aldous Huxley in The Perennial Philosophy. He says, when the hope is to know God inclusively, to realize the divine ground in the world as well as in the soul. Temptations and distractions must not be avoided, but submitted to and used as opportunities for advance. There must be no suppression of outward turning activities, but a transformation of them so they become sacramental. One of the things I talk about, and I'll I'll maybe do a podcast about this at some point, But if you're having a compulsion or an addiction that you're working through, one thing that can be really helpful is creating a ritual around that thing and adding consciousness to that thing. Because you you can ignore it for a time, but it never goes away. It's always there and it will always pull you back down in a weak moment. But the spiritual path, the path of purification says, no, you got to go through it. You have to hear the siren call and strap yourself to the mass so that you can't go to it. You have to learn to create that discernment in yourself. That's part of purification. Now, Young Eisendroth situates the human experience as directly between the animal and the divine realms. What this means in reality is that as humans, we're both following instincts as well as led by spirit until we've been liberated from the lower realms. So using a depth psychological hermeneutic, pets can often be understood as symbolizing a person's connection to their instincts. So if you see pets in a story, you can start thinking what instincts are, are, is the connection here? How's that being played out? In book 17, Argos, Odysseus' dog, passes away upon seeing Odysseus return home. It's actually a pretty moving moment in the text. And this is symbolic of the liberated person no longer being held down by their animalistic nature. This is a pivotal moment in understanding Odysseus' homecoming as synonymous with his liberation. This signifies that his awakening will be abiding rather than fleetingly glimpsed as it often is on the path upward. So you might have had moments in your life where maybe you've even had samadhi moments or moments of moksha, you know, moments of liberation, moments where you, you weren't separate from the truth, where it wasn't something you knew, but it was something that you were. Maybe you had this in psychedelics or who knows, right? Maybe in a moment of meditation or maybe when you're waking up and you're sipping that first cup of coffee, and for a moment, you just are. Well, in those moments, we fleetingly glimpse what's possible, but it doesn't, it it won't be abiding, our awakening won't be abiding until we really go through the journey and climb the chakra system and deal with the temptations and, and learn how to, like as the yogics would say, yoke our will to divine will. 
until we're truly free. So what I'm positing is that when he comes home and his dog dies upon seeing him come home, he's, he's coming into union with the anima, with the self, right? He's, he is, he's reaching home. And you might think about that as, as the home, as a capital H home, as, as the place you've never left, right? As the place that you're whole, the place that you're free, the place that is your birthright. He comes home and his dog dying is showing that symbolism of that animal nature being fully dissolved. The Odyssey ends with a decree made by Zeus, which seals the future of Odysseus. He will be the king as long as he lives there, and there will be peace in Ithaca. Now, it's important to think about the king and peace. In terms of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey structure, this can be understood as both atonement and the return with the boon. Odysseus has now come into reconciliation with both this realm and the next. No longer adversarial with being, that's what's meant by atonement, right, at one mint. He can enjoy the rest of his days as one who has braved the passages that lead to destruction and found the narrow gate that leads to life. Having accepted his fate and limitations fully, not knowing at all what the future might have in store for him, he has at last been reconciled with his own soul. Purified and awake, he is permitted to live out the rest of his days. I want to end just by saying something about truth, since that's how we kind of began this whole thing. Ramdas posits an idea in a lecture series on the Bhagavad Gita, and one of the things that he says is that your power, I mean real power, and I would say David Hawkins actually agrees with this in the book Power vs. Force, but your power is in relation to your alignment with truth. Now, if truth is only logic, you'll notice that when you live your life only by logic, there's a part of your soul that does not accept it. There's a part of your soul that maybe even feels miserable. I remember one time I crafted what I wanted my life to look like on paper and actually within six months had gotten it. It was kind of like this manifestation thing that I did and I actually got it. But I actually realized that what was on paper, what seemed logical to me, wasn't the whole truth about my existence. It felt like there was something missing. There was still an adventure for me to go on. And oftentimes for us to answer our call to adventure, we have to, as I said in the last episode, betray the logic of the moment, betray the truth that was given to us by our family, by society, by culture. And we have to go out in search of a deeper truth. And that is illogical for us to do. We have to look at danger and go forward anyway. And our power comes from our relentless desire to continue seeking the truth, to continue trying to wake up, to continue trying to move into greater consciousness. And I think that's the journey that we're on here. I think that's the the adventure that is available to all of us. And you don't have to have a particular religious path in order to approach your life in a way that sees it as a spiritual adventure think this is like the point that Paul Young Eisendroth is making is if you want to live your life in a way that allows you to attain wisdom, that allows you to attain consciousness, and that allows you to seek truth beyond what you were given, that's available to you. Now, it means that we have to transform. We have to transform our character. We have to transform the way that we're going about our lives. But it is still available to us. We don't need a path. There is no path. It's all right here, right in front of us. And it's about what we want to do with it. And that's the invitation that I think we all have 
just by fact that we actually took an incarnation and we are here now and we have the opportunity to awaken and to go forth into what's greater.